the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, where our mission is to honor, educate, and inspire. We do that here at the Voices of Freedom by recording and preserving the wartime oral histories of veterans and civilians alike, and we preserve those stories and experiences for future generations. And in doing so, we honor those veterans uh, who served during wartime uh, and we're an integral part of the freedom that we have, uh, that we enjoy uh, today. Today's interview is with Philip Adair. He is a World War II veteran with the United States Army Air Forces, and he is a World War II ace, and that means that he shot down at least five enemy aircraft, which in and of itself is an impressive feat. Um, what's really impressive is he did that in one mission. Uh, and that mission took place on December 13th, 1943, uh, when Philip was in a P-40 Warhawk. Uh, and as he tells the story, he had just landed after completing a mission. They were refueling the aircraft when the alarm started to sound uh, that enemy aircraft were inbound. So he got in his airplane and he took off to intercept. And when he got to the intercept point, he found himself faced with 24 enemy bombers and 40 fighter escorts. And uh, despite his aircraft being shot several times, he continued to stay in the fight, which no doubt uh, saved countless lives um, from the Japanese attack. Uh, Phil is part of the Burma Banshees. Uh, the Burma Banshees are famed members of the 10th Air Force and were made up of the 88th, 89th, and 90th Fighter Squadron. And they were all equipped with P-40Ns. That was their uh, their primary mission was to provide cover uh, for the 10th Air Force bases and to engage in um, in escorts over the uh, over the Himalayan mountains. Uh, they were flying supplies over the mountains to the 14th Air Force bases located in China, and the northernmost part of that route was the most vulnerable to enemy uh, fighters. And that's what the Burma Banshees were there to do, was to protect those airlift aircraft and um, keep them safe from the enemy. Uh, and they did that again in the P-40 Warhawk, um, made by Curtis Wright Corporation. So, without uh, me carrying on any further, uh, let's get right into this interview with World War II ace, Silver Star, Legion of Merit, and Distinguished Flying Cross recipient, Philip Adair. This is Dennis Gill with the Americans in Wartime Museum. Today's date is 14 May 2015, and I'm conducting an interview with Philip Adair. We are in Knoxville, Virginia. Sir, if you could state your name and date of birth. Uh, Philip R. Adair. I was born on the 15th of April, 1920. And what war were you, where were you, first of all, where were you born? In Oklahoma, Oklahoma, a small town called Tuttle. Tuttle. Very close to Oklahoma City. Gotcha. And what? R right in Tornado Alley. Tornado Alley, yep. Know it well. <laughs> what 
what can what war were you in and what branch of the service uh, I was uh, in World War two and uh, well originally it was the US Army Air Force and then uh, became the Air Corps and then uh, when they activated the U.S. Air Force, I was in the first increment that came in. Okay. Before we get into your service, do you have any other family members that served yes. in the military? Yes. Uh, my older brother served 26 years. He was in the Navy. He was a medical officer. He was on the Enterprise all during World War II what they call the Galloping Ghost. And uh, he saw a lot of action, or the results of a lot of action. A good bit of the time he was below deck. He told me that once they had a thousand pound bomb come through the deck into the wardroom where he was working and made quite a mess. Sure it did, sure it did. Um, what did you do prior to the Prior to your service? Um. Uh, I was uh, working for a jobber uh, selling candy, cigarettes, tobacco, miscellaneous items, driving a truck around uh, Wyoming. I did that for three and a half years. Okay. Our involvement in uh, World War II uh, obviously began with Pearl Harbor. Uh, do you remember? Uh, do you remember that day? What your thoughts were when you heard about it? Yes, I was worried about my brother. I didn't know Navy. until some time later that uh, his uh, his ship, the Enterprise, that escaped uh, any heavy damage during that particular day. But they saw a lot of damage later on. So your brother was stationed at Pearl Harbor. He was on the Enterprise, Enterprise. on the okay. aircraft carrier. Oh, I got you. And when did you, when did you join the military? It was in uh, 1941. As soon as they announced that they were accepting applications for the U.S. Army Air Corps, myself and a friend of mine went straight down to join. That was in December of 41. Now, did you try to join the, the, the Army Air Corps prior to that? Yes. And, and what happened with that? I was a 17-year-old farm boy, no college, and uh, we lived fairly close to Post Field at Lawton, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So I went up to the small landing strip that they had, and there was a lieutenant in there. He didn't pay any attention for a while and finally he turned around and said, what do you want, Sonny? I said, well, I'd like to know how I get in this outfit. He said, well, the first thing you need to do is go get yourself two years of college and come back and maybe we'll talk to you then. He might as well said, go to the moon first. Uh, I, I lived on a farm. We uh, weren't poor. We just didn't have any money. Right. 
we lived quite well on the farm. And then after Pearl Harbor, the, they were happy to take you? Yes. Right? They weren't so picky. <laughs> now, what did you do when, what did you do in the Air Corps? What was your primary assignment? Uh, well, I went through flying school on the West Coast, Zach Mosley uh, contract school for uh, primary and basic, and then uh, I went to Loop Field for advanced. Uh, the two contract fields, the instructors were civilians that were hired to do the instructing, and they were quite good. Uh, when I went to the advanced course, I had already been flying some before I went into the Air Corps. I didn't tell anybody that, but I did. And uh, it turned out that the instructor I got for advanced training, the last one, graduated in the class before me. And I think, think I knew more about flying than he did. Right. Right. <laughs> One of those things. Right. Now, how long was flight school? Time you entered until uh, they give you an airplane. January 42. I signed up in December 41. And uh, went into training in January 42. And it was March before uh, I actually got my hands on an airplane. Okay. And then from there, where do you go from there? Well, <clears throat> I had uh, primary and basic at uh, a contract school, Cal Air Academy, at Ontario, California. And from there, I went to Loop Field to what they call the Advanced Fighter Training School, that loop. And uh, when I graduated from there, I was assigned to the 80th Fighter Group on Long Island. And uh, I remember I reported for duty on the 7th of September. And uh, they told me You'll find a major uh, I can't think of his name now. I will in a minute, but they said he's on the flight line in the hangar. You report to him and he'll tell you what to do. So I did that and he said, Well, uh, go get yourself a room in a VOQ and uh, come back tomorrow. And uh, when I came back the next day, they said, uh, well, he's already gone. Uh, he's on his way to England. And uh, I reported to another officer, a Captain Verl D. Luring, and it turned out he was a squadron commander of the 89th Fighter Squadron, which 
I was assigned to then. And uh, we trained for quite a while there at <clears throat> Mitchell Field. And uh, eventually we left there and uh, before we left, uh, we flew there for a while at Mitchell Field. That's where I checked out in the P-47. And I remember very well, uh, you had to use the brakes to taxi. With that big nose sitting up in front, you had to go back and forth to keep from running over somebody. And my uh, calves were almost where I couldn't use the brakes anymore. Right. Finally, I got lined up on the runway, locked the tailwheel, hit the throttle, and before I knew it, I was in the air. <laughs> and I remember thinking, man, I've got this damn thing in the air, how will I ever get it back on the ground? <laughs> but it turned out it was quite easy. It was a nice airplane to fly, honest. It was quite a machine to handle, but uh, that big old 13 and a half foot prop right. up there was pushed by a 2,000 horsepower Pratt & Whitney engine. It was a good airplane. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience, a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Now you complete your training uh, in the United States. Where do you go from there? Well, after we completed our training, we got on a We got on, well, let's see, we, we went to Bird Field before we left the States. And when we got down there, General Arnold was there. He was the Commander-in-Chief of the Air Force. And he said, I have some news for you. Some of it you'll like and some of it you won't. He said, the first thing that you won't like is you're not getting P-47s. You're getting P-40s. <laughs> and the second thing is, I can't tell you where you're going. He said, but it's a long way as to where you're going. And uh, you may not think so, but it's an important part of the Air Force's, Air Corps' job at the time. And he was right. It took us 52 days aboard ship to get to uh, from uh, New York to Karachi, India. Mm -hmm. The port there wasn't big enough to handle even the small ship that we got off on. Right. So <clears throat> we had to take our uh, personal bags 
got down in the water, have them handed to us, and carry them through about 100 yards of water to get to the shore. And there we were. <laughs> we wound up at uh, a British training area called Malaire Cantonment. And we were there for quite a while, waiting for our ships that were coming in a in crates to arrive. Once they arrived, we had to get them assembled, and then we started flying from that uh, base up into the valley in the SM, uh, far east, northeastern part of India. What, what was your primary mission? Your your unit's primary mission. Our there. primary mission when we got there was to fly a, a continuous patrol with four aircraft over a place that they call it a hump, which was the Himalaya Mountains. And uh, the unarmed transports were flying supplies into China from the main base of Sukratang and also Chabu. And they were subjected to interception by Japanese fighters that would come up the Mekong and the Salween River Valley, climb up and shoot them down and get out. So we started flying patrols over that. And uh, after a little while they decided that wasn't a very good thing to do. And they stopped that and moved on down further. And eventually we moved down further too and started flying uh, interdiction missions against the Japanese forces on the ground in northern Burma. That's, at some point you've got all this training under your belt and and at some point you encounter the enemy for the first time. Do you remember that and what that was like? Yes. I'll never forget that. It was the 13th of December, 1943. And uh, I had just landed from one of those three and a half hour patrols and my crew chief had gotten me uh, the aircraft service and he was sitting in the cockpit when the alert sounded. I was in the uh, alert rest tent about a hundred feet away and uh, I ran to the aircraft by the time I got there he had it started and I jumped up on the wing he jumped out the other side I got in it I didn't uh, buckle belt or anything, I hit the throttle and was out. The uh, the uh, people in ops told me, we set you with a stopwatch. And from the time we sounded the alert until you were airborne, it was 25 seconds. I know it was longer than that. It probably took them a while to find the watch. <laughs> but I did get off quite quickly. And it was quite some time before anybody came up to join me. 
And as a matter of fact, uh, the uh, Emmy was a formation of 24 bombers with 40 fighters for escort. And uh, I spotted them fairly quickly. And I called control and told them where they were. I said, no, they can't be right, they said. And uh, they said, we have reliable reports from ground observers that they're 40 miles to the east of there. And I said, well, I'm 15 miles away, and I'm sitting up here looking at them, and they're flying northwest at about 345 degrees. And I think they're going to fly up the other side of the river. We're going to turn around and come back and bomb the hell out of you. And I estimate they'll be at the bomb release line at a certain time, and I gave them the time. And sure enough, that's where they were. So uh, nobody came up to join me yet. And there was uh, 24 bombers on 40 fighter escort, 64 of them all together. And uh, I couldn't sit up there and watch them bomb the headquarters, the hospital, our living area, without at least doing something. So I started attacking them before they got there. And uh, I couldn't tell for sure what kind of results of where I was coming in at the same level they were so the so that the uh, bombers on the other side of the left flank couldn't fire at me because the uh, left flank was in the way and the right flank couldn't fire at me. So I got around behind after shooting at uh, the left flank for a while and attacked him there. Uh, I uh, got some good hits on one of the bombers and I could see fire streaming out from the left engine. I know I shot that one down. And uh, after I recovered from the escaping, I went back up and was going to have another go at him, but this time the uh, fighter saw me coming and we got into a uh, scrape. <laughs> and that went on for a while. And uh, finally, I said, well, to myself, I said, I'm going to have another shot at the, at the bomber. So I went into a dive and came screaming up at him. And just about the time I got almost in range, I was looking at them, and I happened to look down. And I saw a fighter coming straight up at me, shooting. And I looked at where his bullets were going. I thought, oh, hell. About that time, it sounded like somebody threw a handful of gravel into a metal garbage can. <laughs> and uh, a fire shot up around both sides of the, of the uh, armor plate, but it went out right away. 
I knew I had been hit, but uh, I didn't know how bad. So when I saw that uh, I was able to still maneuver the airplane, I went back in to try to get some more shots at the fighters and also at the bombers, but I couldn't get back to the bombers again. The fighters were there waiting for me and they cut me off. And that went on for a while. Uh, I shot at the fighters from time to time. I did uh, destroy one for sure and damaged two more. I couldn't tell how badly they were damaged because I had a fair overtake speed and I had to go under to keep from ramming. And finally, I got to a point where I didn't have any ammunition left. And I was about 125 miles away from home for that time. And uh, the last time that I tried to make an attack, the fighters were coming at me pretty heavy. So I wound in a full nose down trim trying to make a, an outside uh, uh, G turn. I knew they couldn't follow that and hit me. And uh, <clears throat> I got away from them. I finally recovered and uh, I found out that when I had full nose down trim, I got hit. And what they did was they severed the trim cable. So I'm up there 125 miles away from my home with full nose down trim. Not a good situation because P-40 is nose heavy anyway. So I'm flying along and pretty soon I was like, man, I don't think I can hold this thing anymore. So I gripped the uh, stick uh, holding it in both hands, gripped it with my knees, and I could, I could uh, go a little ways, but I was losing altitude, and I kept going until I was down pretty close to the trees. And I thought, well, if it keeps going this way, I'm going to be in the jungle pretty quick. So. As long as it slows down, I'll turn it upside down and let it climb until the engine loads up. And then I'll roll it over, let the engine smooth out again, back on my back again. And I don't know how many times I did that, but uh, finally I got pretty close to the base. And uh, I was coming in for, from the wrong direction. The anti-aircraft people almost shot me down. They decided there's something wrong. They said, well, we saw wheels coming out of the top of the airplane. And we thought, what the hell is that? Well, I still had my gear down. 
So I flipped it over and uh, made sure the gear was down and locked. And about that time I was on the ground there. I just let it roll and shut it off there. And I was so tired that I couldn't get out of the airplane. They had to help me out. But I didn't get hit at all. The airplane right. suffered a few holes in it. But uh, I never, I never uh, was wounded in that fight at all. How long do you estimate it was just you and the enemy before you, you had some of your comrades come up and, and help you out? Because you said it was you for a while. I never saw anybody else. Uh, and our particular squadron that day, we were supposed to be flying patrol over the hump to protect the transports. Another squadron, the uh, 88th, was responsible for defense of the valley. And they had a full squadron to get up and, and uh, attack the uh, uh, Japanese that were trying to bomb us. But uh, for some reason, I couldn't seem to find them. It was hazy. You couldn't see very far that day. And uh, so they, they didn't find them until they were clear out of the area and they were almost out of fuel. So they had to come back and land. They did shoot down one, uh, one zero. How long were you were you stationed there in that location? For the duration of the war, or did you? Uh, yes, well, not not the duration of the war, but we were there for quite some time, <clears throat> and eventually we traded our P-40s in for four P-47s, and uh, I was one of the people that. Uh, load the P-47. A good many of the replacement pilots that we got in were afraid of the P-47. They said it was a, a widowmaker. But to me, it was a very stable airplane. Uh, it was a bit of an airplane to handle, but it was a good, honest airplane. And the little grass strips that we were flying off of was 3,100 feet long, 60 feet wide which is a small field for P-47. Uh, so uh, it joined uh, a depot that had a, a big, long uh, concrete strip. Uh, that's where most of the people took off from. And uh, they said, uh, the replacement pilots that came in said, there's no way you can fly P-47 into this strip. And I said, well, you're wrong there. Oh, yeah? Well, I'll show you. I said, I'll come in, and I'll have it on the ground by the time I get to the uh, ops building, which was halfway down the runway that was 3,100 feet long. I said, I'll be on the ground by the time I get there and I'll be stopped before I get to the end. 
and uh, I did that. And I couldn't believe it. And finally, when uh, I'd been there a while, I said, well, this airplane will take off from here without any problem. And I said, I'll come by the, by the up shack, which is halfway down the 3,000 foot runway with the wheels in the well. And I did. So <clears throat> they couldn't, they couldn't uh, argue with that anymore. Any other um, encounters stick out in your mind, aside from the very first one? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, at one time, at one time, I was uh, leading a, a flight of uh, P-40s with an external fuel tank underneath the uh, belly of the airplane and a bomb on each uh, shackle on the wings. And uh, we were trying to make a surprise attack on a, a, a Japanese encampment there. And before we could get there, I looked up and I saw a flight of, of uh, Three flights of four zeros and one flight of three was 15. And I called uh, I called my flight and told them to make sure that the armament switches were on. But to, before they uh, encountered the zeros to, to uh, drop the bombs, but not not to pull the arm and wires on them so they wouldn't explode. And uh, about that time, I looked and this group, I don't know where they came from, but they were really pros. And they had looked at us and, and picked out which ones were gonna go after certain ones. And they didn't come for me. They came for number two. And I tried to get around to shoot it when it was on his tail. But I couldn't pull it tight enough. And uh, I said, well, fly into the clouds, which he did. And I followed him in. But uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't see him in the clouds. So I came back out. And we were in a, <clears throat> a sort of a, a valley with hills around it except to the south. And uh, the weather in there was good with a ceiling about, oh, 4,500, 5,000 feet. So there was room to maneuver in there. But uh, any time I came out of the clouds, there was always four zeros waiting for me over there. And uh, I couldn't run from them because I knew they were faster than I was. I knew they could outturn me. The only option I had was to come head on with them. So the first one that I 
flight that I saw, I was going head on at them. And uh, number one, two, and three peeled off before they were in range. Number four kept coming, and I waited until he was, I figured was about a thousand feet away. And I had him dead on, and I squeezed the trigger, and the airplane just blew up. Those 650 calibers really made a mess out of it. Right. And uh, <clears throat> we were there for some time in and out of the clouds. And uh, I was trying to protect my guys as much as I could and to survive myself. And finally, uh, I couldn't see any of of my troops. And I was really concerned because I hadn't lost anybody yet. And finally, the uh, enemy aircraft, I think there was five of them left, they turned and went home. And after I circled a little bit, I headed back and pretty soon I saw an airplane up north, and at a distance, it was hard to tell whether it was one of ours or one of theirs. So I approached it carefully. It was my wingman, and uh, he was all hunched over the stick. And I looked at his airplane, and they'd made a shambles out of it, and. Uh, he made a sign for his, his uh, instrument paddle. No instruments. So I knew he was going to have trouble. So I came up and signaled to him to fly on my wing. Uh, we headed home, and I thought, well, two of us survived anyway. And we'd been going about five minutes after I picked him up, and I heard a call, Bamboo Red Leader, this is Bamboo number three. I'm up at Sadia. I'm shot up pretty bad. I don't know whether my tires are any good or what's wrong with the airplane. I don't see any leaks. Uh, could you possibly come up and look at me? And I said, well, you're not a lot out of the way. I hate to do it with, with uh, my uh, wingman because he shot up pretty bad. And uh, he said, well, I don't know whether I need to bail out or, or try to land this thing. So. I made that little detour out, picked him up, and I said, well, I think your tires are flat, but otherwise you look okay. You got a lot of bullet holes in you, but it's still running and I don't see anything leaking. So <clears throat> we headed home and uh, the number four man, it was his first mission. 
And when he saw those uh, zeros attacking us, he went the other way. He went home, which probably was a smart thing for him to do. So all of ours got back. Uh, some of theirs didn't. I don't know how many they lost. <clears throat> but that was quite a day. Did you, did you win any awards while you were, while you were in World War II? Yes. Uh, Silver Star. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, I got the Silver Star for attacking the uh, big bomber raid that came on the 13th of December. So that was your first, first the first uh, enemy contact right. I had, contact. and uh, right. I didn't want to say, "Well, I've got 64 airplanes cornered up here. Will you come up and help me?" Right. <laughs> I called control and said. Are there any friends in the area? I could sure use some help. No, we don't have any in the area. But they did, and I couldn't understand that. They had the whole damn squatter right. that uh, they had control of, and they couldn't send them up to help me. And uh, they finally, they finally found the uh, the raiders but uh, they were almost out of the area by the time they found them. I think they did shoot down one, uh, one of them. I got a bomber and, and two, uh, two zeros out of it. That of your first encounter. How, how many confirmed kills did you have? World War II? Uh, at least six. At least six confirmed? How many do you need to be an ace? Five. Five. You're a World War II ace. <laughs> yeah. From Burma, you, do you, where do you go from there? How, how long were you there, first of all? I was there 19 months. 19 months. I had already flown the equivalent of five uh, tours of duty. And what would it? What would that? Uh, how many? How many sorties well, in a tour? Uh, Twenty-five tours was the standard when okay. we got there. Uh, some of the fighter uh, outfit that we replaced went home with twenty-five. Some stayed for thirty-five. Uh, I had. <clears throat> in two months, in two months of flying, I think I had at least 40, 40 missions. I know that because the day that uh, I shot down the first uh, aircraft. It was mission number 44. And strangely enough, my aircraft was uh, stamped 44. That was a number. <laughs> so I figured that's a pretty good number. 
I flew that airplane until it had uh, 400 hours on it. And I went to the squadron commander. I said, that airplane is perfectly good. I know it's supposed to go to the depot at 400 hours, but I'm afraid that what I get won't be as good as this one is now. And finally, relented and said, okay, you can fly it to 440 hours, but after that, no more. So I had to give it up at 440 hours. And the one I got wasn't as good as that one was with all that time on it. Life. <laughs> <clears throat> so where do you go from Burma? From Burma, rest and recuperation on the west coast, and then went to Colorado Springs for an assignment to a tactical unit. So when I got there, they said, well, the only thing that we have available now is assignment to a SAC unit flying bombers. And I said, well, I'm a fighter pilot. I don't want to fly trucks. Well, we don't have anything for you. Come back tomorrow. So I came back tomorrow several times. And uh, finally they said, <clears throat> we have one uh, fighter outfit at Selfridge Field, Michigan. It's a 56 battle group that came back from England. And we could send you there. I said, please do. <laughs> I'm ready, ready to go. So that's where I went. And uh, I was in the 56 there for overall about five years. We had P-51s to start with. I went through uh, uh, F-80s and to F-94B, which is the first radar-equipped uh, fighter that we had. And they were still flying that when they called me and told me that I was getting orders to come to Colorado Springs to the headquarters. And I said, well, you can't do that. That's against the regulations. I said, uh, my wife is eight months pregnant and she's not supposed to leave after six months. We'll waive that. <laughs> Get yourself on up here. So we went. And when I got there, I'd driven up uh, with the family. And when I got there, I said, here's your orders. You're going to be gone for two weeks. I said, what about my wife? She's almost due. And uh, the lieutenant colonel that was my boss, he said, we'll take care of her. <laughs> so I was gone when, uh, when that one was born. And almost the same thing happened on the next one. Were you so, married when you were in Burma? No. You were not married yet? No. Okay. Okay. So. 
No, I met my wife on the train from Oklahoma to the Rest and Recuperation Center in Santa Ana. And uh, I was there for a month. We got quite well acquainted during that time. Right. And later on, we were married. We've been married uh, 70 years now. What was your what was the rank that you achieved? Because um, it's at some point in the Army Air Corps, and then that becomes. The I Air was Force. still a second lieutenant. Okay. Uh, when uh, no, no, I take it back. I was first lieutenant. I just gotten promoted, uh, but in the reserves. So I went into the first increment. And they said, well, uh, you can come in as a first lieutenant with the same pay that you're getting now, but your permanent rank would be as a second lieutenant. So I went in that way right. in the first group that uh, when they first uh, activated the regular Air Force. What, where, 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 did, where did that lead you? Once you went into the Air Force, where did that take you? Uh, well, when I first went in, I was going to training, and they sent me to Higley Field, Arizona, which is just outside of where Luke uh, Field is now. And uh, they didn't have any airplanes there. So we planted grass and picked up cigarette butts for about six weeks. I still had a pinstripe suit. They said, don't bring any extra clothes. We'll give you clothes when you get in. Right. So I wore that pinstripe suit for about six weeks. <laughs> oh, that was a mess. And were you still flying at that time? Oh, I hadn't started yet. Hadn't started yet. Okay. So no. you went from P-40s, is that your first aircraft? Uh, well, we went through trainers first, trainers. but the first uh, uh, tactical aircraft was a P-47. Okay. And what was the last aircraft that you flew in the Air Force? A 104. I was a maintenance officer of the uh, squadron in the first group that got jet aircraft. And uh, we, uh, we set up a lot of procedures for maintaining jet aircraft and figuring out how long you could go between inspections, what you had to do in the inspections. And uh, our unit was foremost in, uh, in flying hours. We did quite well. Is there anything that stands out? A 
aside from your time in World War II, is there anything else that stands out about your time in the military? Probably nothing compares to that. Oh, uh, no, nothing <laughs> compared to it, but uh, uh, I was on an exchange tour with the Royal Air Force for a year, uh, flying uh, de Havilland vampires and Gloucester meteors. And uh, I was assigned over there as an air weapons instructor in a school teaching a squadron uh, uh, training officers for air warfare. And uh, that was an interesting and uh, quite, a, quite a pleasant tour. We had to work hard, but it was fun. Now you would have served, you served until 1971, is that yeah. correct? So you would have served both, not only World War II, but Korea and Vietnam yes. as well. I was in, but I didn't serve in the front lines. Now, in Korea, when I came back, I came back from England. I'd been over there on the exchange tour that I mentioned. First thing I did was go up and register for uh, to go to uh, fight again. And they said, well, the war's almost over. You're number 330 on the list. We'll never get to you. Right. Yeah, they, they were right. Uh, I didn't get back uh, then as a combat pilot, but having uh, accumulated quite a bit of jet experience and maintenance experience, I was assigned to the uh, uh, fourth Chinese nationalist air wing on uh, Taiwan as a maintenance advisor. And they had three operations advisors there, but they didn't have any combat experience. And when the Chinese found out that I did, it came to me and said, uh, we're not getting anything that helps us shoot down the MiGs from our ops officers. They don't have any combat experience. We understand that you do. Would you be willing to uh, try to help us? I said, sure. Um, you give me a group of five people in two weeks, and I'll set up a course for them and, and uh, we'll go through the things that I believe they need to know. We did that, and uh, in the second, second bunch, uh, I was demonstrating how you attack it. Make, 21 with the F-84G, which is straight wing, and subsonic. And I said, well, you have to get up well above them, surprise them, come straight down, not too far behind them, haul it out, and 
they close in so you can get up and shoot at them before, they, before you know they're back there. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble because you'll overshoot and they'll come after you. Uh, I was doing that one day and the seat latch broke. And when it did, I hit the bottom. And I don't know how many G's I encountered, but it was a lot. And I was flying around unconscious for a while, and eventually I came to. And I was sort of laying on the right side. And the airplane was flying around just like it knew what the hell it was doing. Right. <laughs> so I got back and landed, and, and uh, I couldn't fly for a while. They wanted to send me home. I didn't want to go. And eventually I got where I could go back to flying, not quite as vigorously as I did before. How do you think that your experience, particularly your World War II experience, how do you think that affected your life? As you look back. I can remember a lot of things that I'd like to forget, but I can't. One of them was when my tent mate one of my tent mates was trying to take off from uh, Missionau, which is a 4,000-foot strip made of rocks. And uh, it was a very hot day. It was 135 degrees. And uh, when he got to the end of the runway, he didn't have enough flying speed. So he wound up flipping over upside down and the aircraft caught on fire. We couldn't get him out. We had nothing to lift it with, and he burned to death there. I can still hear him screaming. You think overall positive experience? as far as how it affected your life, the, 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 your, your wartime experience in general? Uh, <clears throat> we were too busy. We just had to keep going. Yeah. No, we ran into a lot of things later. Uh, the British had their headquarters uh, not too far from where I was stationed on temporary duty with another squadron uh, in northern Burma. And uh, the Japanese 15th Army was coming across Burma heading for their headquarters and they were getting pretty close. And finally they, they called and said, it looks like they're going to 
make it here and take this headquarters unless you can help us. And I was fine with the P-51 outfit. Uh, so they, they flew some and I flew a lot. As soon as I'd use up the ammunition, I'd come back and reload it. Sometimes I'd make two missions on one uh, load of fuel. And uh, we killed so many Japanese that you couldn't believe it. They were in an open field, no place to run. Right. And you do what you have to do. Most people weren't alive. Most what? people, most people today weren't alive back then. They don't know. Um, they only know what they've read in the newspapers, seen in the movies. Um, what do you want people to know um, about your service and about your comrade service, the, those you served with? Well, I was very fortunate to have a bunch of good people to serve with. That means a lot. Uh, if you can count on somebody, you know, uh, it means a lot to you. You feel like you're more secure. We flew, uh, we flew to Paris with four aircraft like this at a distance so if uh, one pair was attacked, you could come around and, and get a shot at the people that were coming up behind them. And that worked pretty well. They'd break off and go somewhere else. Is there anything else um, that we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about or mention? Or I know there's a lot. Well. <clears throat> a lot of our work was support for the ground forces, especially Merrill's Marauders. Uh, they really had a rough time. I think they lost probably 60% of their troops, and the rest of them were pretty sick. But they hung in there, and they captured Michinaw. And I was the first Allied fighter to land a fighter on Michinaw after they captured it. The strip was 4,000 feet long with the bomb crater that uh, was right in the middle. I put it there. I almost went in it. And all my flight got in. And uh, the reason we landed there was because all of our bases back in the valley were closed. They said, you can't land here. We can't see, we can't even see the edge of the runway from the alert shack. So we had to stay there until finally they said, well, it's clear enough now that you can probably get in but you'll, you'll have a 
rough time of it, but you can make it if you want to try it. So we did. I had a I had a plan for getting back. There's a mountain. Uh, it's the tallest mountain over there. I should be able to remember the name of it now. Uh, probably 30 minutes ago, I might have been able to tell you. But it was 29,000 feet. And usually, you could see it from somewhere. And I always headed for that uh, on a, uh, a reciprocal that was 315 degrees. And when I got to where there was a, a mountain on my wingtip, I knew I was down in the area where the uh, floor, the ground floor of the valley was level right. at 360 feet. So I would let down until I got to the treetops and fly on that course until I came to the river, the Brahmaputra River. And I would turn and fly down the river until I came to an island that had a C-46 that ran out of fuel and landed on the island there in the middle of the river. And at that point, I'd turn 45 degrees left and fly down the river bank until I came to a dead tree. And I knew that the runway was just the other side of the dead tree, so I'd pull up that 20 feet and turn just past that tree and I'd be right there at the runway. I had to use that a few times. Right. Wow. It sounds like you have an amazing, amazing uh, stories to tell uh, about your time. Um, I want to thank you for your service, most of all, and I want to thank you for giving us the time today um, to talk with you about it. Um, well, I was glad to do it. It's, um, it's, it's always great to hear from World War II vets. And, um, they say they were the greatest generation. I can't argue with that. Well, we were there and we tried. Yep. That's all anybody can do is the best they can. You're right, right. Well, I want to thank you again for the Americans of Wartime Museum. Thank you for your service. You're thank very you welcome. Thank you for your time, sir. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime Experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.